Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Finally, I'm getting to the episode that I wanted to do about following on from my conversation with Karen Strubantz. If you remember, Karen is a researcher, policy advisor, and consultant. And in our conversation in particular, she talked about her work contributing to the development of the European initiative called COARA, C-O-A-R-A, the Coalition for Advancing Research Assessment, and the agreement that comes out of that. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to stop listening to me now and go and listen to that one first. As always with these sorts of agreements, there's the challenge of moving on from actually having words on paper um, and signatories to agreements to actually putting these agreements in place. And that means really significant change initiatives. And in that episode, Karen talked quite compellingly about the need for both top-down and and bottom-up buy-in if we're going to create such research culture change. And she also encouraged us to have both the small conversations in our everyday situations as well as at more senior management levels and about the systemic issues as well that need much more coordinated action. What I thought I'd like to do in this episode is to complement what Karen talked about and flesh it out a little bit more by providing a little bit more detail about Koara. First of all, I thought it could be really useful just to read out and name the 10 commitments of the Koara Agreement, just because I think they do a really nice job of summarizing the core, well, the core commitments, just exactly as they say on the tin. So I'm not going to read every item uh, fully, but just so you get the sense. So number one commitment is to recognize the diversity of contributions to and careers in research in accordance with the needs and nature of the research. Two, to base research assessment primarily on qualitative evaluation supported by responsible use of quantitative indicators. Three, Abandon inappropriate uses in research assessment of journal and publication-based metrics like the Journal Impact Factor and H-Index. Four, avoid the use of rankings of research organizations in research assessment. Five, commit resources to reforming research assessment to achieve their organizational changes. Six, to review and develop research assessment criteria, tools, and processes. Seven, to raise awareness of research assessment reform and provide transparent communication, guidance, and training. Eight, to exchange practices and experiences to enable mutual learning. Nine, to communicate progress made on adherence to the principles and commitments and tend to evaluate practices, criteria, and tools, and so on. I imagine that these are all commitments that we would be really keen to sign up to. And indeed, as that 
the 31st of July, as reported on the Koara webpage, they've had 608 organisations that have signed up to these 10 commitments. And as I mentioned around Karen's conversation last week, they're currently setting up lots of the working groups that are trying to do that work of putting the, the commitments into action. And we know, of course, that this is going to be a challenge at a European level since Europe isn't a, a homogeneous uh, region. It has lots of different countries and institutions and cultures. And so there is a lot of work, a lot of work to practically translate the principles of the commitments into action. But still, I find it really encouraging to see this happening. And, and I'm excited to see what I think is a real momentum for change. So it's not just Kawara. I can, we can also point to some evidence of more general moves for change that are, are showing up in other initiatives. So another initiative at the European level is something called LERU, L-E-R-U, the League of European Research Universities. And that's an initiative that involves 23, what they call themselves as leading universities and to paraphrase directly from their document, this league was based upon an exchange of current practices and recent developments at the universities regarding the assessment of researchers in the context of hiring, promotion, and evaluation. In particular, the document I am looking at is a LIRU framework for the assessment of researchers, a position paper from 2022. And they talk about developing a common framework that can inspire and support universities in the, in the context of their hiring, promotion, and evaluation with an, with an objective to reward and recognize again that, that argument about the diversity of profiles and contributions and recognizing that we need all of those uh, in order to be a success, whether it's in research, education, or in service. And in this particular framework document, they also talk about three different perspectives of assessment that I think are really interesting. The first one is uh, the multidimensional perspective, and here they're drawing attention to the diversity of contributions. They also talk about the developmental perspective, and here they draw attention to issues around leadership and innovation and collaboration. And point to the necessary transpersonal skills that are needed to engage in those activities and therefore the need for us to develop ourselves as people in those interpersonal skills. And the third perspective that they draw attention to is the contextual perspective. And here they're pointing to both professional circumstances as well as personal circumstances and contextualizing people's research in those ways, and that this in particular being very important for inclusivity. So this particular research paper then continues with examples and, and they also encourage experimentation of different approaches to assessment, and they also call on policymakers and funders to explicitly support such experimentation. So just as another you know, example similar to Quara, it's Again, this thing of pointing to recognizing and rewarding diversity of profiles and contributions and recognizing that we need all different types for the overall success of research and, and in the service of society. 
And there are many other examples that I won't go into in detail, but you know, we can point to the Leiden Manifesto for Research Metrics from 2015 that's been quite influential. I can also point back to the episode with James Wilsden, where he talked about the metric tide report in the UK. And um, we can see that there are lots of these discussions and initiatives happening at national and cross-national levels, which points to some of the systemic changes that we might need. And of course, many of these initiatives can also be traced back to DORA, the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment from 2013. And I think DORA was particularly influential in starting the discussion about moving away from the use of journal-based metrics, or at least driving the discussion a bit further. And looking at how we could assess research on its own merits uh, rather than just on the journal in which it was published. And even more impressive is the sign up to Dora. So, again, on their webpage, they report that since 2013, they've had 23,936 individuals and organizations in 164 countries that have signed up. So these are really indicating some big initiatives internationally, at least on paper, for these top-down systemic initiatives. And we can also see some top-down initiatives happening at more national levels as well, where at national level, they're starting to actually think about putting some of these initiatives into practice, at least in terms of policies and funding by funding councils or relevant government departments. I know that the Australian Research Councils have recently had a survey looking for input on different forms of research assessment. And as we've said, the UK has been doing a lot of work on this. In Austria, where I'm currently located, there. I've also been involved in discussions with the relevant ministries in Austria and involved in different workshops, again, looking at how we might reform research assessment and bouncing off a lot of the work that's going on in these other initiatives. One country, though, that I'd particularly like to draw attention to is the Netherlands, because I think they're doing particularly well, at least looking in from the outside, in setting in place. Um, some of the supporting processes for new forms of research assessment. A very simple document that I can point you to is a 2019 position paper that involved universities and funding councils and government agencies called Room for Everyone's Talent. And it's short and sharp and visually compelling. And its focus is on how to rethink academic reward and recognition systems, as it says. And again, what I like about it is the way that it promotes the diversification of career paths and enabling people to define their own career shape. And then that shape becomes the shape against which they to be evaluated. So they recognise uh, the diverse career paths. They also focus on quality rather than quantitative measures, stimulating open science is another plank, also recognising the balance between individuals and the collective, and stimulating academic leadership. You, we can start to see lots of common themes across these. So in terms of recognising that 
science requires both individual and team performance. You know, this reflects some of the conversation that we had with Tanita Kasky and Elizabeth Adams about what Glasgow University are doing, for example, around rewarding collegiality in their assessment and promotion criteria. Various Dutch university councils and funding councils have also collaborated to produce a document called Strategy Evaluation Protocol. And this sets out aims and specific methods as advice to be used to assess research at Dutch universities. And they often go through this process of assessment every six years at institute level. So this might be where faculties bring in an external expert committee. The faculty produces a report on their activities and performances over the last six years, and the external panel will come in and have meetings with various relevant groups and discuss the report with them and write some sort of assessment. And again, what's really interesting about this strategy evaluation protocol is that it's really trying to take into account the issues around diversification of career profiles and open science and the importance of culture in producing high-quality research. And so the assessment committee is explicitly asked to look at things like research quality, societal relevance and viability. And the unit that is reporting, uh, writing the report, are encouraged to write their report again, in terms of a more narrative, qualitative-based argument. And wherever possible, still using factual evidence, but not relying on indicators. The report isn't driven by the indicators. And the guideline document also has in the appendix some very specific examples about how organisations might go about reporting against the criteria it sets out. So while this document is definitely targeted and written for the, the Dutch audience, I think any institution about to go undergo a faculty review could pick up this document and think about how to reinterpret it for their own context. I think it's really encouraging that these sorts of initiatives are happening and that people are trying to put it into place. I'll put links to all of these documents that I, and initiatives that I've referred to in the podcast so you can see, you can go and follow up yourselves. So I think there's lots of really exciting stuff happening top down, but we know that these initiatives slow to make to be put in place, that change on the ground takes time and can be really difficult, and it really does take significant culture change. And while we might have you know, some really encouraging pointers for larger scale systemic change, we still need the bottom-up change of the individuals every day sitting on a panel or discussing a promotion case and so on. And that's challenging because many of us have grown up in systems where there's a certain sense of, I don't know what we would call it, sort of sense of security or safety or familiarity with our quantitative measures. And, you know, the seduction of numbers, it can also seem like these quantitative measures are more efficient and also more reliable and, and comparable. 
So I know that even if we have these international agreements that organisations have signed up to, or if we have national initiatives and national guidelines on taking more qualitative approaches, in the end, it does come down to you and me as reviewers, as people sitting on evaluation committees, promotion committees, and so on. And that's where I think a lot of work has to be done in terms of how to practically operationalize the aspirations and commitments articulated in these documents. And that's one of the commitments of COA around doing the communication, guidance, and training. And we need to also feel like find new ways to feel confident that we're making good decisions. Because when we're talking about qualitative assessments and we're talking about individuals and institutions being able to define their own shapes of research profiles against which they're evaluated, that's going to take a lot more work because previously in the past we've relied on naive notions of being able to do direct comparisons, comparing and contrasting. So I want to just share now some examples that we might call bottom-up examples from my own attempts at trying to walk the talk a little bit around some of these initiatives. So I can think about this in particular in terms of being a referee, for example, in writing doing evaluations of someone's case for promotion to professor or if I'm on an appointment committee and being asked to evaluate candidates. And one of the things that I really first need to do is my own self-reflective self-awareness about trying to check in with my own biases and just being careful that I'm not being sucked in by H indexes and looking to compare people just on H indexes as an indicator. And we have the discussion recently with Sarah Davies, where she certainly critiqued our notion of excellence that are based just on these indicators. So if I'm a referee and looking at these guidelines and documents, they've really challenged me to think about how I might write a more narrative, qualitative referee report. I'd like to give some specific examples, all anonymized, of course, of things that I've done when I've been asked to assess a candidate, often still in terms of impact factors and personal metrics, you know, where people are still using some of these and institutions are still using some of these old criteria. So one example of what I've done when I'm writing a reference is where I have been asked explicitly to assess a candidate in terms of impact factors and personal metrics such as H-index, I'll often make an explicit statement that says something like this. I'm very surprised to be asked to explain the channels of dissemination in terms of impact factors and personal metrics such as H-index. This is out of step with many of the current research assessment reform initiatives such as DORA, COARA, Leiden Manifesto, etc. These initiatives make strong cases for moving away from such quantitative metrics or using them responsibly if they are to be used and focusing more on quality indicators. End of quote. So I'll often make that explicit comment speaking back to the assessment committee 
before I then go on and provide some more qualitative contextualized assessment of that person's puts and impacts. Because I know that where committees are still using these old indicators, they will be influential still. So one of the things that I do in terms of trying to contextualize work is where the case that I'm reviewing is particularly cross-disciplinary or multidisciplinary. And we know from research that people who work and publish across multiple disciplines can often have challenges getting published. So in the abstract, if they were working solely within a single discipline and on a very well-defined topic in an area that does tend to have high citation rates, we could see that this person's H-index could be deemed to be higher. And so what I try to do in a referee report is to contextualize their H-index relative to their multidisciplinary work. So again, just to read an example of something that I've written. It needs to be acknowledged that the candidate's research is extremely challenging because it crosses multiple disciplines. This is in terms of both the knowledge and skills and collaborations they need to draw on and the challenges of speaking back to diverse disciplines who all have different ways of doing research and evaluating and reporting on research. End of quote from reference. Similarly, another issue that I think we can help contextualise as reference referees is to contextualise different types of research that people do that may entail different timeframes and complexities, not one being better than the other, but just being different and having different implications for publication outputs and, you know, and the numbers. So some of us might do research where we can work intensively for a month on a project, get some really deep, interesting results and write them up and get them published. And other, others of us might be working on projects that take a number of years. It might involve, I don't know, doing some contextual research and developing technologies and deploying them and running, for example, some full randomized control trials afterwards. And these sort of projects are at very different levels of scale and complexity, and so do have different implications for publication cycles. So that means that we really can't compare one person's seven journal papers in a year with another person's one or two journal papers in a year when they're doing these very different styles of research. Again, as an example, I can read from a reference for someone who are you know, trying to, again, trying to contextualize some work for this latter style of research that happens over longer periods of time. So to, to read from that reference, it's worth noting that the candidates' publications are based on years' worth of research, when many of their peers publish papers based on work from a scale of months, if that. Evaluation is a case in point. The scale and difficulty of conducting full randomised control trials are exponentially greater than the scale of evaluations of many other high-quality publications in this discipline area. Yet RCTs are what is needed if this research is to speak to the clinical community and to impact clinical practice and patient outcomes. 
And this candidate is evidently committed to having this impact and doing these more difficult, longer-term evaluations for the sake of impact, not just publications. End of quote there. And this reflects what Karen talked about in that the decisions that we often have to make as researchers about are we going to do research because we want to have impact or do we want to build up or need to build up our CV? And I do appreciate that being at different stages of our careers, these sort of questions may create pressures in different directions, of course. I can give another example um, of the way in which initiatives and documents like the Koara Agreement have really helped me in writing fair assessments of someone's performance. Again, it, it has taken extra work, I think, on, on my part as the reference writer, and it has required me to be more considered and reflective and to take more of a qualitative lens. So one example is where I was asked to write an assessment for someone's promotion to professor. And this was from a university that in, in their criteria document that they sent to me, set out all the usual very standard metrics around age index and impact factors and level of funding and so on. So what I did at the beginning of the letter was just clearly name the elephant in the room, if you like, where I clearly said that, um, you know, by some of the criteria that the university was asking me to judge the candidate on, they weren't going to be very strong. But then I could go on and say in the evaluation report and to start to read from a reference, however, to only view the candidate's achievements through very narrow notions of quantitative scientific excellence misses the significant and unique contribution that this candidate has made, their international standing in the field and the diverse outputs, practices and impacts. And if I may, I will address these in, in the rest of the uh, referee report as I qualitatively judge their promotion application according to the principles from COARA. I consider these principles more inclusive and they explicitly recognise diverse career paths and contributions, as in the case of this candidate. End of quote. I was able to go on then, and what I did, and this was an institution that had not signed up to Koara, but what I did was, it, it wasn't just me saying, oh, they're doing great work, or they've had these other impacts. I could quote directly from the agreement. So again, like I might say something like, the Koara Agreement specifically promotes recognition of diverse outputs, practices, and activities based primarily on qualitative judgment and supported by responsible use of quantitative indicators. So I would put that in quotes um, from the Koara Agreement, and then I would also point to the fact that the agreement also talked about recognition for different types of impacts beyond scientific measures. So I would say, and it was here in particular that this candidate was outstanding in their ability to bridge research and practice, and they've had really significant impact on practice. So what the Koara Agreement gave me was some specific language and some credibility to argue for why 
I was choosing to review the candidate against a different set of assessment criteria than what I'd been asked for. And then I could finish off. I, I still need to go on and do the work to make the arguments for why they were significant um, impacts. But it does did allow me to sort of, again, just reinforce. And at the end of that description of how they made the impact, I could say these valuable contributions that researchers make to science for the benefit of society, including diverse outputs beyond journal publication. So I could explicitly acknowledge that they not have had the journal publications, but they had lots of other impacts. Another point that I often get asked to do in writing reference letters that I really don't like at all is when I'm asked, and this was this is from a specific request that I received, how does the candidate compare with strong researchers in their or closely related fields at similar stages of their careers? The mention of specific individuals would be appreciated. So that's what I was asked to do. And you may remember that one of the commitments from, of Kawara was about avoiding the use of rankings of research organisations in research assessments. What I did uh, in response to that particular question was explicitly to say, no, I wasn't going to do that. And again, to quote uh, from the reference that I, I wrote in this case, I've chosen not to name specific individuals as point of comparison, as I consider the candidates' achievements to stand on their own. It's also very difficult to compare researchers when this candidate has such a unique disciplinary profile. A comparison with anyone within a single disciplinary area would not be relevant or fair. So even though the Quara commitment specifically talks about not using rankings of research organisations, I think we can extend that to interpreting it as not doing the comparison of individuals either, specifically when we talk about the fact that we can have diversification of career paths and recognition of diverse types of outputs and, and in particular contextualising people's performances. And that makes it really ridiculous to think we can directly compare and contrast individuals. We can also see the way in which this might discriminate against particular groups. So even if a couple of individuals might be comparable on some measure, like I don't know, let's just say they're being five year, five years postdoc, how do you compare a person who's single, unattached, at, totally focused on their work at a well-funded institution who gets lots of researcher support? How do you compare that person with someone who has new parenting responsibilities, who's on a precarious contract and at a less well-funded institution? Or how do you compare the really selfish researcher who doesn't do any service and just expects everyone else to provide peer service in reviewing their papers, etc., versus the people who are doing all the work to organise the conference or edit the journal that that first person's going to publish in? So I just point blank refuse to do that. And again, I, I appreciate being able to draw on some of these documents and agreements to argue why I'm doing that. It's not just me being difficult to get along with. And in a similar way, another issue that often comes up in evaluations that we're often having to deal with is around service. 
And we know, again, from the literature that women in particular are overrepresented in performing service roles in departments and faculties and in peer communities, and often at a cost to their own promotion chances. And this is work that's often under-recognised and under-rewarded when it comes to promotion appointments, especially when we implicitly fall back or explicitly fall back on, on the, the quantitative metrics. So again, I draw explicitly on the language of the Kawara Agreement, and I might say something like the Kawara Agreement argues that while the agreement focuses on the specific challenges of improving research assessment, the principles should also be extended and reinterpreted into broader academic service that includes teaching and service to society so that we can, and again, like the recognising such as the Dutch room for everyone's talent, yeah, about achieving, recognising that the importance of collaboration and those interpersonal skills and, and the service. The, the Glasgow work at rewarding collegiality. So in all of these, they're just some examples. I've really appreciated having the international, national initiatives and agreements to draw on just to try to give some credibility to taking different stands and recognising that it does take more work to write a qualitative argument and to contextualise people's uh, profiles. I'm also not sure particularly how the, how the committees receiving my letters read them or accept them. I, I, I do know that in a couple of cases, the candidate did get their promotion or did get the job to what extent that may have been down to my arguments or not, I, I don't know. But it, it has been good to at least have these initiatives to draw on to, to contribute. So I guess in some ways the examples I've just given are examples of bottom-up, me taking my opportunity as a reference writer or a committee member or whatever to influence specific cases. And I'm also hoping that they're also a little bit middle out. And here I would define middle as middle out being able to try to influence both the specific decisions being made on this specific case, as well as trying to influence and raise awareness, change some of the practices and influence some of the broader structural issues or institutional issues. So I'm using the opportunity as a reference writer or committee member to raise awareness because many people on the committee may not have even heard of some of these initiatives and or may still be really set on applying all criteria. Or at the very least, they might stimulate some discussions and that can be done indirectly through the letter or if I'm actually sitting on a panel or a committee, I can directly stimulate some of those discussions. What I think is useful if you're actually on a, a faculty evaluation panel or an advisory board or whatever is also to go and just check if that institution has signed up to an agreement because that can also provide some very specific hooks when you're sitting in a committee meeting to remind people around the table that the institution has signed up to the agreement and to promote discussions about how they might be going about actually operationalising and implementing the principles. I think there might also be some bottom-up, maybe middle-out, influencing via mentoring roles that we play. 
I know, for example, one institution had signed up to the Lira Agreement, and there were some members of their faculty who were needing to write some new policy documents for the faculty about promotion. And they weren't even aware that the institution had signed up to this agreement. So I was able to point them as a mentor to the to that agreement around the pathways towards multidimensional academic careers that I mentioned earlier. I was able to point them to that document and uh, that may have been able to help them in write uh, some arguments in their policy reflecting the agreement that the institution had signed up for. And they were aware that this might have been contentious in the faculty where there was still a lot of emphasis on more quantitative measures. And we can also influence others as well in encouraging people to think about how they might frame their CV or their annual report or their promotion cases or their job application cases in more qualitative terms. Again, you know, you may be able to reference some of these initiatives, even if they're not directly asked for, or even if a qualitative narrative CV isn't particularly asked for. And I know that there's a whole lot we still have to learn about working with narrative CVs, both in terms of how to write them as, as well as how to evaluate them, because they can be more challenging. But I had a colleague recently uh, tell me that they chose to write their annual report as a narrative CV, even though it wasn't asked for by the institution. And they just said what a great experience it was, that it really made them step back and appreciate what they'd actually achieved and the impact that they had. And it made them feel really proud of their work in a way that their bullet-listed old version of the C didn't do at all. And I'm also aware too of how I might role model that and thinking about walking the talk a bit myself. And I realized that on my webpage, I often had that bio that just reported on the, the, the numbers and the put-driven, metrics-driven type CV. So I've, I've tried to reframe uh, at least some of the introduction to, to put it more in terms of what drives me and what I focus on that points to the impact that I'm trying to have. So just wrapping up, what I've tried to do is just point to both some of the, what I think are some interesting top-down initiatives that are happening in creating momentum for change, and um, also talking about some of the ways that we might influence change uh, from the bottom up and middle out as individuals and being part of trying to make that change happen. And of course, we can try to encourage our institutions to sign up to these agreements as well. And you can also think about getting involved in working groups if you want to. And I just also wanted to say that in sharing my reference writing examples, I'm not asking now for lots of requests to write references. I'm actually going to be doing fewer of these, if any, as I move into different roles. But I'd encourage you to all think about how you're writing your reference letters or how you're playing out your role sitting in committees. Um, and ways that you might contribute to enhancing and improving and developing our institutional policies and practices. So I'd really like to encourage us all to do our part and see what we can do. I think it will take some years for it all to play out in real practice. I think there's in part some sort of generational change that's needed, but there's momentum towards this. And we all want better forms of research, evaluation and assessment that are more sustainable 
and more appropriate for the diversity of contributions that we can make. And we can all argue in different ways, in different forms, for how we enable diversity and recognise the importance of team collaborations and diverse roles in producing good science and recognising diverse forms of impacts and outputs and recognising the value of good leadership and good interpersonal skills in the middle of all of this and in creating research cultures that are sustainable and collaborative and supportive. And I'm excited that there are moves happening in these directions. Let's make it happen. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.